Hello everyone and welcome back to Three Fates Decide. My name is Sam and I am doing another solo episode on the Murdaugh trial, the Alec Murdaugh trial. I know I did a solo a few weeks ago about the Netflix documentary and I promised that I would come back and do one on the actual trial, so here I am. It just so happens that the week that I did the documentary solo episode was also the week that Alec Murdaugh was found guilty on all four charges and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. You think you know what we're going to talk about. And welcome back to Three Fates Decide. It just sounds more dramatic that way. All right, so this week we are going to be talking about... But just when you least expect it, we changed the game. One Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. I mean, we always celebrated Easter. You're part of the Half-Blood Prince. So we're going to do another free talk, freestyle thing. No planned discussion. At the end of the day, only one thing matters. We decide. We're going to hit the, the main highlights. That is the thing that we were saying back in that episode. A quick recap. Three Fates Decide podcast. We're going to get into it from the very beginning. So Alec Murdaugh was uh, said to be the murderer of his wife, Maggie, who was 52, and his youngest son, Paul, who was 22, who were both shot dead at the family's you know, 1,700-acre property in South Carolina on the night of June 7th, 2021. Murdaugh, when he spoke to police after the murder, said that he had returned home from visiting his elderly mother, who had dementia, I believe, and he came home and he found the bodies and at the, near the dog kennels and immediately called 911. There was audio of the 911 calls where he seemed to be completely devastated about this whole thing. Uh, no arrests were made on the murders for more than a year. And then in July of 2022, Alec was charged with the murders and was then convicted on March 2nd, 2023. So it it really was a while before you know, cops finally kind of looked at, at Alec. I personally believe that one of the reasons why it took so long for them to even look at Alec is because his family was so renowned in that area. They had owned a law firm for o- almost 100 years. Alec was an attorney at that law firm. And according to, obviously, the documentary that I mentioned, as well as a lot of people in the area, the Murdaugh's kind of were able to get away with a lot. A lot of things kind of got swept under the rug because they had a lot of connections with police in the area and things like that. So the family very rarely got into trouble that they weren't able to get out of. So my personal opinion, that's why it took so long for Alec to get charged with the murders. So going into opening statements of the trial, which started on January 25th, the prosecutors were telling jurors that there was um, cell phone records and video taken by Paul minutes before he died. That really proved Alex's guilt. 
the prosecutor's head attorney, Creighton Waters, gave a timeline for the murders, saying that Paul was shot at the dog kennels at uh, about 8.50 p.m. and Maggie was only a few minutes later. Cell phone records placed Alec at the dog kennels minutes earlier. And then meanwhile, the suspect had told everyone that he was never even at the kennels. Mr. Waters described the video that Paul had made at the kennels. Um, he had made the video for his friend. They were dog sitting. So he was making a video for his friend to send to his friend. And that there was three voices in the video. One was Paul's, one was Maggie's, and one was Alex. So they said, basically, it just proves that literally a few minutes, I believe the cell phone video showed, like was taken at like 845 and apparently Paul had died about 8.50. So literally five minutes prior, that proves that Alec was there with Maggie and Paul five minutes prior. Meanwhile, he's saying he was visiting his mother. So um, other evidence that the prosecution promised to show included gunshot residue found in both Alec's car on him and on a raincoat that he said that he had left at his parents' home a week after the murders. So then the uh, Alex defense team got up for their opening statements. And apparently during the opening statements, Alec was seen breaking down in tears. And his attorney, uh, Dick Harpoonlin, described the fatal shot which killed his son, which, and I'm sorry for any uh, trigger warnings here, um, but he said that it exploded his brain like a watermelon. Murdaugh arrived home to find his son's brains by his feet and that he, Mr. Harputlin insisted that Alec was an innocent man, saying that the jurors will see a Snapchat of him and Paul happily spending some father-son bonding time about two hours prior to the murder and that they'll see a, a Snapchat video of them riding around the area looking at trees they planted and laughing and having a grand old time and you know that there was no way that Alec could possibly kill his son the apple of his eye when literally hours before they were they were great and having a great time. He also mentioned that the cell phone records that the prosecution had already discussed are incomplete and that Maggie's phone was thrown on the side of the road half of a mile away from the, the family estate where they where the murders took place at the same time that apparently Alec was already at the property. Uh, the suspect would, he said, the, uh, Alec would have had to have been Houdini to be in both places. So one thing that was discussed was that when Alec talked to police, he immediately suggested that his wife and son had been murdered because of the 2019 fatal boat crash that Paul was involved with that killed a young girl and uh, or a teenage girl. So if you recall, when we talked about the documentary, they spent a lot of time on that boat crash and about how Paul was charged and was awaiting trial for that death. Um, So right away, Alec did suggest that, you know, Paul had been getting death threats as a result of it and everything like that. So it had to be because of that. So they were saying that Alec, as soon as the first, uh, you know, law official arrived at the scene, 
who was uh, Sheriff Sergeant Daniel Green. And on the body cam footage, it captures Alec, who was like complete, was just pacing around. They said like almost like a dog, like he just, but there was no tears, no nothing. And he just kept asking, are they dead? Has someone gone to check them? You know, are you sure that they're dead and all that? And then the first thing that Alec told the officer when he arrived was that he was armed, saying that, you know, because of the scene that he saw, he did go to the house and get a gun and bring it down here. Um, And then Alec told the officers that the murders had to be connected to the boat crash that Paul was involved in. And he goes on to say that, you know, his son was in a boat wreck a few months back, even though it had actually been years, but um, that he had been getting threats and that they didn't take it seriously and you know but again just to refresh he caused the death of 19 year old mallory beach because he was drunk and driving his boat and crashed into a bridge so that's that's what that is and then on the tape the body cam he is not crying there's absolutely zero tears he's trying to build himself up to cry but again he he's not crying And so when they brought Sergeant Green to testify, he mentioned that, that he, you know, even though he found his wife and son's bodies, there was, though he seemed upset, he didn't have any physical tears running down his face. Um, It also showed, the body cam also showed that Murdoch was wearing a clean shirt, even though he admitted to touching the bodies. Now, this was a very gruesome scene. Paul was, again, trigger warning, but Paul was shot in the side of the head and the neck with a shotgun. And then Maggie was shot multiple times with an AR-15 rifle. So this was a very gruesome scene. He said he touched both bodies, but yet he didn't have one speck of blood on him. Um, He was dressed in a white t-shirt and dark shorts, and there was no sign of blood at all. And apparently multiple law uh, law enforcement officials described how Murdoch was clean and didn't appear to have any blood on him when they arrived at the scene. Uh, Yet according to the 911 call, he mentioned that he had touched the bodies and that he tried to turn over his son and check his wife for a pulse. So it it just really didn't make a lot of sense considering all the blood that was kind of all over the place. Um, they did play the 911 call that Murdaugh made on the night of the murders. And it's a very dramatic thing where he's apparently crying. He's sobbing on the phone and he just kept saying, it's bad. My wife and child have been shot badly. Um, dispatcher, he also told the dispatcher about the 2019 boat crash involving Paul. So he was really pushing that narrative that it had all to do about that boat crash and that it was someone that was trying to get back at Paul for killing uh, Miss Beach, Miss Mallory Beach. Another narrative that Alec was pushing was to go and and talk to a farmhand that was recently hired to work at the estate that they were staying in. Um, He said that he's the only one that he could really think that was a little suspicious um, because he had told Paul apparently this crazy story. And what the story is, is that um, 
you know, when he was in high school, he got into a fight with some men of color and FBI undercover teams observed him fighting them and put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs and their job was to kill Black Panthers. And in case you don't know who Black Panthers were, they were a civil rights, you know, group, um, mostly made of people of color. And uh, so this guy was saying that he was hired by the FBI to go and kill Black Panthers. So he said that Paul was, uh, Alec mentioned that Paul was very taken aback when he heard that story and recorded it on his phone. And Alec also told officers that Paul had been working with him a lot and that the story was just really weird. But he also mentioned that he didn't believe that the man could be behind the murders and that it's just stupid and he was just embarrassed to even bring it up. But he wanted to put that little tidbit. He was pushing to just try and make sure that no one looked at him for the murder. So he was really like just finger pointing at everybody. So other evidence that the prosecution was bringing up was another audio from uh, Alex's second interview with law enforcement that was played uh, to the court on January 30th, revealing that he may have unwillingly slipped up and confessed to the murders of his wife and son. He apparently was sobbing and and said, I did him so bad, which appeared to say that his son, he was talking about his son in the police interview. Um, SLED Special Agent, uh, Agent Jeff Croft, just to remind you, SLED is South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, um, was asked by the prosecution to clarify what he heard Alex say. And he, uh, Jeff Croft mentioned, he just said, it's just so bad, I did him so bad. So, you know, it does appear that uh, he may have slipped up there. Prosecutors sought to request that the that Alec had slipped up during the police uh, interview and Murdoch was seen shaking his head and was appearing to mouth, I did not say that, to his attorneys in court. However, the audio of the interview raised doubts of whether or not Mur- uh, Alec said I or they. So it just, I guess, because, you know, audio sometimes can be a little little crazy. So there are some people who think he said they did him so bad, not I did him so bad. Uh, During cross-examination, another defense attorney, Griffin, grilled Agent Croft as to why, if Alex's statement raised any alarm bells, he didn't follow up on it. And the special agent testified that he made a mental note about the comment and said that it was still early on in the investigation Uh, when officials were in more of an information gathering stage. The audio was played again in court, twice in real time, and once at one-third speed. When asked by uh, the defense if he heard they, not I, when the recording was slowed down, Agent Croft said he still heard him say I. I do kind of get the defense's point because, you know, if... I heard that, I definitely would have made sure that that was, you know, pushed. The fact that it took so long for them to even charge Alec and this guy saying that Alec may have slipped up and said I in his second interview, which was probably not long after the murders and nothing happened. I mean, that that does make it look suspicious.
other evidence that Agent Croft um, was talked about with his body cam footage on January 30th, it revealed that the Murdoch's had a huge stash of firearms inside the home. And um, he he told them how he seized firearms and ammunition from the Murdoch home, including weapons and ammo that matched the type of guns and bullets that were used to kill Maggie and Paul. Um, a .300 blackout semi-automatic rifle, a 12-gauge Browning shotgun, a Benelli shotgun, a 12-gauge pump shotgun, were all seized from the family home and were brought to, into the courtroom to be shown to the jurors. Uh, the agent also testified that there were several empty boxes of ammunition and which were found during the, the home, I'm sorry, during the search of the home on January 8th and, I'm sorry, June 8th and June 13th. Inside the blackout rifle was cellular and, and a bellet .300 AAC BLK ammo, which is the same type of ammo that was used to kill um, Maggie and also seized as evidence was a credit card receipt that showed that there was uh, a purchase from Gucci over $1,000 uh, and that item had been circled. So possible motive, um, you know, that maybe Maggie was spending too much money. I don't know. On January 31st, Agent Croft also testified that the ammunition still shot ammo specific, specifically for a Winchester dry lock matching the fatal shot fire through Paul's brain had been located on the Murdoch family uh, property. Two separate guns, a rifle and a shotgun, were used to kill Maggie and Paul. They've never found the actual guns. They just found guns that share similar ammo, which I guess prosecution felt that that was enough proof since they were never able to actually find the murder weapons. Because there was two different guns used in these murders, the defense team sought to push a theory that there could have been two shooters that were working separately and responsible for killing both Maggie and Paul. Jurors were shown photos and diagrams of the crime scene from both the night of the murders and a month after the murders on July 16th with um, Mr. Harputlin honing in on two bullet projectiles in particular, one that traveled through the doghouse and one through the quail pen. Under cross-examination of another sled agent, Melinda Worley, Mr. Harpoonlin pushed the idea that it could have possibly been two people because everything or the, the projected shots were from two different uh, angles and that it was reasonably possible that that was possible, that that is what happened. Um, Agent Worley did admit that the theory is possible, but said that it is only one explanation as to what may have taken place on that night. She also added that angles could also be explained as one shooter moving around. So, I mean, is it possible? Yes, which technically the defense only has to create that little bit of doubt in the juror's mind. And, you know, that's what, that's what they were doing. Um, jurors also learned about the final text messages and phone calls made by Paul and Maggie before their murders. On the night of June 7th, 2021, Paul placed a call on his cell phone to a friend, Rogan Gibson, at 8.40, lasting four minutes, followed by a second call at 8.44. The second was the last incoming communication Mr. Gibson received from Paul. 
Five minutes later at 849, Mr. Gibson sent Paul a message. See if you can get a good picture of it. Marion wants to send it to a girl we know that's a vet. Get him to sit and stay. He shouldn't move around too much. The message, which they believe is about a dog that Paul was taking care of, went unanswered. From that point on, neither Paul nor his mother responded to any messages or calls on their cell phones. Uh, prosecutors said in their opening statements that Paul was shot dead first about 8.50 and Maggie minutes later. Their cell phones had no activity from 8.49 onward. After sending the text message at 8.49 and receiving no response from his friend, Mr. Gibson sent a follow-up text at 8.50, uh, 9.58, which just said, yo, trying to get his friend's attention. Um, Mr. Gibson also tried calling Paul multiple times at 9.10, 9.29, 9.42, 9.57, but kept getting no responses. Um, jurors also heard that he also texted, texted Paul's mother Maggie at 9.34 saying, tell Paul to call me. Shortly after, Mr. Gibson had four missed calls from Alec Murdaugh at 10.21, 10.24, 10.25, and 10.30. So that I can't even imagine. Like you literally were just having a conversation with your friend and then all of a sudden he just disappeared and then you find out what happened. But going back to the cross-examination of uh, Agent Worley, Mr. Harputlin sought to pick holes in the evidence gathered from the crime scene. He raised doubts about a mark or a potential footprint spotted on Maggie's calf on the night of the murders. He suggested that a footwear impression that Agent Worley said she couldn't say um, was a mark, but that it it could be a foot uh, footwear uh, impression. It could just be a mark. He, she couldn't tell, I guess, at that time what it was. The mark was not examined on the scene, and there was no impression of the imprint that was taken, is what she testified to. She also confirmed that the bloody footprint found on the feeding room was later determined to be that of a law enforcement officer um, something that the defense's line of questioning made that, you know, obviously the evidence, uh, the scene wasn't preserved and that, you know, evidence could have technically been destroyed because they were kind of walking around, stepping in the blood and all that stuff. So they, they definitely were doing a good job of picking holes in, in that aspect because it, they definitely should have, police should have done better with a, such a horrific crime scene, like you need to be careful. I think anyone that's seen any type of cop show knows like you need to make sure that you preserve that crime scene as best as possible. So one surprising testimony um, on January 31st was Alex's cousin, uh, John Bedingfield, who testified against him, revealing that he had actually bought Alex several firearms. Um, and and gave to him years prior to the murders and that they matched the type that were used to kill Maggie. Um, John Bedingfield works for the Department of Natural Resources, but has a side business making and selling firearms under a federal license. And he told the court that Alec approached him before Christmas in 2016, wanting to buy both Paul and his surviving son rifles as presents. He purchased two subsonic 300 blackout rifles, one black, one tan in color, and it was about $9,188 so that his sons could hunt hogs. Two years later, April 2018, he said that Alec also bought a third rifle for him 
for $875 because he said Paul had lost his other one. So his own cousin testified against him saying that he sold him rifles that match what killed his wife. So the prosecution was basically trying to prove that Alec had kind of set this whole thing up, um, including the fact that he had texted and called his wife after the murders had been done. So apparently his final text to his wife was moments after he allegedly killed his wife and son, and it was revealed to the court during the the case. Uh, Jurors were shown data from the cell phones of all three, Maggie, Paul, and Alec, on the night of the murders. Prosecutors say that Alec shot Paul again at around 8.50 and Maggie a few minutes later. Almost immediately after, cell phone data shows that Alec made several calls to Maggie and other family members. His first call to Maggie was at 9.04, minutes after she was already killed and it uh, went straight to voicemail. He then texted her at 9.08 claiming he was going to visit his mother saying, I'm going to check on M, be right back. And the text was never read. In total, Murdoch called his wife five times between 9.04 and 10.03 after he supposedly killed her. None of the calls were answered. His last text message to his wife came at 9.47 where he just said, call me, babe. As well as calling Maggie, Murdoch also Uh, His cell phone records also showed that he made several calls to other numbers in the hours between the time prosecutors say the murder took place and he called 911. Prosecutors allege that he was seeking to build an alibi for that night. Minutes after the final call, Murdoch called 911 at 10.07, claiming that he found Maggie and Paul's body. What is interesting, and again, we live in this great time of technology, is that they were able, Computer Crimes, you know, Center, um, Lieutenant Britt Dove testified that he processed all three cell phones the night, you know, with the night of the murders. And based on the cell phone data, he said that the last text message Maggie read was a message from her sister-in-law, Lynn Murdoch, in a group chat, which she read at 8.49. After 8.49, she didn't open or respond to any messages or calls from several people, including her husband, her oldest son, and her and Alex's uh, brother, John Marvin Murdoch. Jurors also heard how the cell phone data shows Maggie's phone or orientation changed from portrait to landscape at 8.54, and then again at 9.06, indicating that it was in someone's hands. A minute later, at 9 07, the screen went on and off as though someone tried but failed to unlock it. Uh, health app data also presented jurors showing that Maggie's cell phone recorded 59 steps in two minutes after 8.53 p.m. after prosecutors alleged Maggie and Paul were already dead. So they basically proved that someone was holding the phone and took steps and recorded those steps. Maggie's phone was locked between 8.49 on June 7th. 2021 and 1:10 p.m. the following day when it was found dumped on the side of the road around a quarter of a mile from the house. Paul's cell phone was also initially locked after the murders until a Secret Service digital forensics examiner, John Van Houten, who testified that he managed to unlock it when he successfully tried Paul's birthday as the password. But they basically showed that, you know, someone was moving, walking around and moving with Maggie's phone. So now the big evidence that I think really was kind of like a turning point for the prosecution is that 
they on February 1st, jurors were shown a cell phone footage taken by Paul at the dog kennel just minutes before he and Maggie were killed. And it basically casted a bunch of doubts on Alex's alibi. Off camera, three voices are heard. Paul, Maggie, and a man, prosecutors say, is Alec. Uh, in test, uh, you know, very dramatic testimony, two friends of Paul who had close ties to the family, who've known the family for a long time, both said that they were 100% sure that the voice belonged to Alec. Cell phone data also showed that the video was recorded for 58 seconds from uh, 8, 44, and 49 seconds to 8.45, 47 seconds, less than five minutes before the murders. The uh, the attorney, I'm sorry, Alec uh, claimed that he was napping at the family home at the time. So this, again, disproves his, his alibi. Rogan Gibson, who is the one that actually was getting sent the video, um, described the Murdoch as a second family. And he was one of the ones that testified that he was 100% sure that it's Alex's voice in the footage. And then the other was another friend, Will Loving. The video was played in court and Murdoch appeared to rock his head up and down and cry because at that point he knew that he was caught. Another video that was shown was a Snapchat video Paul had sent Mr. Loving less than one hour before he and Maggie were killed. Uh, the video was sent at 7.56 p.m. on June 7th, 2021, and it shows Alec on the grounds of the family estate. In the footage, Alec was seen dressed in trousers, loafers, and a blue button-down shirt. And that's clothing that did not match what he was wearing during the police cam footage after the murders. In the body cam footage shown in court, the um, Alec was dressed in a white short sleeve t-shirt and shorts. So definitely a change of clothing. Questions had already been raised about his outfit as multiple law enforcement officials had testified that Murdoch's clothes were clean from head to toe, even though, again, he mentioned that he had touched both bodies. But again, that could just be, you know, a coincidence. <laughs> Do I believe in coincidences? Not really. Um, it's still not really known if investigators ever found the, the first outfit of him in the trousers and the, and the blue shirt. Um, but less than an hour from that Snapchat, Paul and Maggie were unfortunately killed. Uh, prosecutors then claim that Paul was, again, I know I've said this a couple of times, but that he was killed about 8.50 PM followed by Maggie. Cell phone data being used to narrow down the murders to the precise eight second window. Uh, Britt Dove, the SLED agent, um, testified that Paul's last activity was at 8.48 uh, p.m. and that Maggie's was 8.49 p.m. Eight seconds later, Paul received a text message, but it went unread. Neither Maggie nor Paul used their cell phones after that time. I'm sorry, just to clarify, Paul's last activity was uh, 8.48 and 59 seconds, and Maggie's was 8.49, 27 seconds. Um, and then the eight seconds later was 8.49, 35 seconds. So it was a very quick uh, thing. So as mentioned before, Alec made several calls to his wife, but jurors heard testimony that Murdaugh, you know, the night of the murders, again, made those calls, but they were mysteriously deleted from his call log. Um, 
Lieutenant Dove testified that Mr. Morrall had called Maggie five times between 9.04 and 10.03 p.m. that night, and uh, none of the calls were answered. But according to the call log on his cell phone, Murdaugh didn't place or receive any calls between 4.35 p.m. on June 4th and 10.25 p.m. on June 7th. He processed, uh, Lieutenant Dove processed three cell phones belonging to Murdaugh, Maggie, and Paul and testified that the trove of the phone calls from Mr. Murdaugh made to his wife's cell phone um, was missing from his call log. The only explanation for the missing data is that the call logs were manually and intentionally deleted by someone between June 7th and uh, when his phone was seized by authorities on September or in September of 2021. So why did he delete them? I don't know. That's pretty stupid because that just makes you look even more guilty. When uh, the defense did cross-examination of Lieutenant Dove, their goal was to cast doubt on the theory that Murdoch took Maggie's phone. Uh, Lieutenant Dove did admit that the data suggested Maggie and Murdoch's phones were not in the same place at the same time at 9.06, as the step data did not match, which was important because at 9.06 is when the final orientation changed. And remember, they said that it went to the portrait mode and then back. So that that is a very important detail. Um, Lieutenant Dove did testify that this movement could have been as it was being thrown from the vehicle or where it was discovered the next day and the defense contending that Murdoch was at the family property walking with his cell phone at that time. However, under redirect, prosecutors casted doubt on the defense's time frame for when the phone was tossed uh, down the road. And Lieutenant Dove did testify that the orientation change can only take place when the phone screen is on. The SLED agent testified that the screen on Maggie's phone was off between 9.07 p.m. and 9.31 p.m. So if the phone was thrown from the car during that time, there would have been no orientation change ever recorded. So it was definitely on at the time that it was possibly thrown, if that's what they're going with. So in early February, the 2nd and 3rd, several witnesses testified without the jury being present as the judge weighed in on whether or not the evidence could be presented at the trial. The prosecution claimed that Murdaugh's alleged financial crimes are possible motive, while the defense asked the judge to throw that evidence out. On February 7th, the judge ruled that the state, in the state's favor that the evidence about his financial crimes are admissible in court, and that was a huge blow to the defense and basically provided a huge motive uh, in this case. At the time of the murders, uh, Alex's law firm, PMPED, was closing in on his uh, apparent alleged multi-million dollar fraud scheme with a colleague confronting him about it on the morning of the killings. His finances were also coming under intense scrutiny in the lawsuit brought by the family of Mallory Beach, who again is the young 19-year-old who was killed in the boating accident uh, with Paul. Um, The hearing for the boat crash lawsuit was scheduled for a week after the murders, but obviously it was postponed because of the murders. Um, But separate from his murder trial, Alec also is facing around 100 charges for stealing almost $8.5 million from the uh, law firm clients dating back to 2011. The attorney, who has since been disbarred, uh, represented clients in wrongful death lawsuits before allegedly pocketing the settlement money for himself. 
and I'm sure they'll go, you know, we'll go into this a little bit later, but um, he did have a huge opioid addiction. So I do believe that that's why he was stealing so much money was so that he could keep up with his uh, addiction, which, you know, um, but Alex's former best friend of 40 years broke down in tears in court as he described the moment he learned that Alec had stolen millions of dollars from his clients and also $192,000 from him as well. Uh, the friend's name is Chris Wilson, and he said that his, the betrayal just knocked him down and revealed that he didn't know what to think anymore and that he had known and loved this man most of his life and he just couldn't believe that he could do something like that. He also testified that two other attorneys that worked on the case, that the, I'm sorry, that he had worked with Alec on a case together and Murdaugh made $792,000 for his cut. At Alex's request, Mr. Wilson made the check payable directly to him instead of the law firm. In July of 2021, one month from, I'm sorry, a month after the murders, Mr. Wilson said that uh, his that his friend had gotten in touch saying that he had been unable to structure the fees as planned and needed to pay the money back and have it paid directly to the law firm. Um, Alec also only had $600,000 to pay it back. And uh, Wilson said that he covered the additional $192,000 on the basis that Murdoch would eventually pay him back. On September 3rd of 2021, three months after the murders, Mr. Wilson said that he finally learned that his friend had been scamming him and a bunch of other people and confronted him the next day. He revealed that his longtime friend broke down and confessed to stealing the money to fund his secret 20-year opioid addiction. And I just don't even, I don't even know. Um, the CFO of the law firm, uh, Jeannie Seckling, also testified and revealed that she confronted Alec over the missing payments on the day that Maggie and Paul were killed. She told the court that by June 7th of 2021, the law firm partners had noticed $792,000 worth of legal fees were missing from the case that he worked on with Mr. Wilson. When she approached Alex to ask him about it that morning, she gave, she said he gave her a dirty look, something that she said she had never received from him before. And hours later, Maggie and Paul were killed. Over the next several months, the law firm partners uncovered multi-million dollar fraud scheme where he had been stealing millions from their clients and pocketed himself, reaching uh, the, the head of the confrontation and eventually he resigned on September 3rd. The day after he was forced to resign, uh, amazingly enough, Alec was shot in the head on the side of the road, but prosecutors feel that it was a botched hitman plot, which is very interesting. So on September 4th, 2021, news broke out that Alec had been shot in Hampton County, South Carolina. Um, it was said that he was changing a tire and was shot in the head. His attorney had confirmed, um, but he was still conscious and talking and it was a good sign. An Unidentified Good Samaritan reportedly drove him to an ambulance and the EMTs began treatment and called the helicopter to airlift him to the hospital. Uh, there was an entry and exit wound, a skull fracture, and minor brain bleeding in two places. 
um, a SLED spokesman had said that the agents were actively investigating the incident when this all came about and that it was considered an attempted murder. Two days later, Alec, whose wounds were superficial, um, released a statement saying that he was leaving his job and uh, entering treatment once he left the hospital. His statement said, the murders of my wife and son have caused an incredibly difficult time in my life. I've made a lot of decisions that I truly regret. I'm resigning from my law firm and entering rehab after a long battle that has been exacerbated by these murders. I am immensely sorry to everyone I've hurt, including my family, friends, and colleagues. I ask for prayers as I rehabilitate myself and my relationships. By the 15th of September, there was a surprising break in the case of Alex's shootings. Uh, Authorities alleged that he attempted to arrange his shooting death for his surviving son, Buster, to receive $10 million in life insurance. Curtis Edward Smith, the man that Alex had allegedly hired to kill him, was arrested in South Carolina on the 15th and charged with assisted suicide assault and battery of a highly aggravated nature, pointing and presenting a firearm, insurance fraud, and conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. According to the arrest affidavit, um, Alec conspired with Smith, who was 61 at the time, in a scheme to shoot him. He allegedly provided Smith with a firearm and directed him to shoot him in the head. Alec admitted to the scheme on September 13th, and Smith admitted to his role the day after. Um, Alec said that his addiction to opioids and his depression after the murders of his wife and son drove him to concoct this scheme. Alec knew, his attorney mentioned um, that obviously he knew what he did was wrong and that he was a massive depressive and was going through withdrawal and all that stuff. Um, But he, he said that he wanted the money to go to his oldest son uh, to help him out. And it was uh, to protect his child. Um, Later on September 15th, when everything was kind of coming out, Alex's attorneys claimed that Smith had exploited Alex's drug addiction and mental illness. So that is what forced Alex to want to end his life, which is crazy. Um, On the 16th, Alec was pulled uh, over by um, the Hampton County Law Enforcement Center. I'm sorry, he went to the Hampton County Law Enforcement Center and turned himself in because there was a warrant for his arrest because obviously this was a planned thing. Soon after, SLED announced that they had arrested him in connection to a shooting on the incident of September 4th, in which he conspired with Curtis Edward Smith to assist him in committing suicide for the explicit purpose of allowing beneficiary to collect life insurance. He was charged, Alec was charged with insurance fraud, conspiracy to commit insurance fraud, and filing a false police report. And yeah, that was the craziness of him trying to commit suicide. Now, was it really to uh, just give Buster insurance money. I think it was also because he knew that eventually the police were going to get to him for the murders of his wife and son. But again, that's just my personal opinion. Plus, obviously, all the financial woes that he was dealing with, with 
you know, work finding out about it. And then on top of it, um, the son of his ex-housekeeper accused him of stealing $4 million after her mysterious death. Now, if you recall, I believe I mentioned in the documentary episode that his uh, uh, his housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, Satterfield, had worked for the family for like more than 20 years, and she mysteriously died after a trip and fall down the stairs of the family home in 2018. And there was misconceptions as to how it happened. Murdaugh mentioned that he arrived after and she was still kind of conscious. And she mentioned that the dogs had pushed her down the stairs and whatever. But then it turned out that Alec actually wasn't even there. And, you know, so it was just a very suspicious thing. And a lot of people seem to think that someone in the family, not necessarily Alec, but someone in the family had caused her death. There was also speculation in the documentary that she found Alec's stash of opioids under his bed who and then informed Paul and Paul confronted his father so you know it was kind of crazy but what Alec did was he put out and he fought with his insurance because it was a accident at the home and he did it so that her family could get money her son uh told the court with this whole trial that he swindled them out of $4 million in a wrongful death lawsuit payout from the family after his mother's death. The court has shown evidence of two separate settlements in the wrongful death suit, one for $505,000 and one for $3.8 million. Mr. Satterfield testified that Alec did not tell him about the settlements and that he did not receive one cent of the money. In June of 2021, the same month that Maggie and Paul were shot, there were reports in the media about the settlement, and Mr. Satterfield had chased Alec about the progress of the case. But unbeknownst to him, Murdoch had already allegedly received the payouts and pocketed the money for himself. So now Murdoch is also charged with almost 30 criminal charges over just the Satterfield settlement alone. Uh, prosecutor Mr. Wa- uh, Waters also hinted on an ongoing uncertainty about the nature of her death, which I already discussed, and how she fell. So that is even more issues uh, in terms of his finances. Another witness that the prosecution brought on was attorney Mark Tinsley, who is the attorney for the Beach family, the family of Mallory Beach. Um and basically how it was putting his finances under increased certainty at the time of the murders. So again, kind of still going into the motive of these murders. Mr. Tinsley told the court that Murdoch claimed that he was broke and couldn't pay the settlement that Tinsley was asking for his clients. Tinsley didn't believe it, so he filed a motion compelling Murdoch to reveal his finances. After hearing of the suit had been scheduled to take place on June 10th of 2021, Mr. Tinsley then testified that he expected to take the lawsuit to trial in the late summer of 2021, but obviously everything got derailed because of the murders. Um, He said at that point a fuse had been lit and it was going to expose Murdaugh of all his financial crimes. So he, I guess, tried to figure out a way to get out of that situation by making him a victim of unspeakable tragedy. And... Tinsley said that pretty quickly he recognized that the case against Alec, um, if he were in fact a victim of some vigilante, it would have been over. So I think he, Mr. Tinsley was definitely 
uh, su- suspect um, of of that whole thing. So he basically is saying that Murdoch knew everything was going to unravel, and that is possibly why he decided to kill his son and his wife. So as I mentioned, one of the other witnesses was the caretaker of his mother. Um, her name is uh, Michelle Shelley Smith, and she worked for uh, Murdaugh's mother uh, from October 2019. And she, she told the jurors that Mr. Murdaugh had very unusual behavior, both on the night of the murders and the days that followed. She said that he was very fidgety when he showed up that night. Um, and he showed up between 8.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. And then left 20 minutes later. So I believe Alec had said he was there for a while, but she said he was only there for 20 minutes. And she testified that it was very unusual for him to visit at night and that he was just very, very fidgety. A few days after the murders, she said that he spoke to her about his visit that night, telling her, to tell authorities that he had stayed at his parents' house for double the length of time than that he had. And he said that uh, he told, or she said that he told her that he was there for 30 to 40 minutes. And the conversation just kind of made her really nervous. And so she called her brother, who's a police officer, to tell him what Alec had said to her. After that initial conversation, Alex spoke to her again, this time offering to help her out with paying for her upcoming wedding and putting in a good word for her with other jobs and basically trying to bribe her. And uh, she broke down in tears when she described that Alec and his family were was a good family and told the jurors under cross-examination that she believes that his offers were simply him being a good person. But I think it's pretty clear that... Uh, he, he was trying to bribe her. Um, days after he offered to help pay for the wedding expenses, Miss Smith testified that Murdoch showed up at his mother's house at 6.30 a.m. the morning, in the morning, cradling a blue something. She didn't know what it was. She said he took it upstairs and left it before he left again. And she noticed for the first time that he had a cut or a bruise on his forehead. He returned sometime later that day, driving a white truck, which he then left at the property and switched it to a black truck. The prosecutor said that law enforcement found a blue tarp and a blue rain jacket in a search of the home, and they said that gunshot residue was found on the jacket. Under cross-examination, Ms. Smith insisted that the item she saw him carrying was a blue tarp, not a blue rain jacket. But under redirect, she was shown a photo of the bundled up blue item and asked if that was what she had seen. And she confirmed it was. Mr. Water, um, the prosecutor, said that that was actually the rain jacket all bundled up. And the judge denied a motion from the defense to strike the raincoat as evidence. But there was gunshot residue found all over the mysterious blue raincoat that Alec had allegedly hid in his parents' home in the days after the murders. A SLED forensic scientist, Megan Fletcher, testified that at least 38 gunshot residue particles were found on the inside of the jacket, which is a significant number, and is consistent with a recently fired gun being wrapped up inside the jacket. 
she also added that she stopped counting after she reached 38, but said that she definitely knows she would have found more. Um, a smaller number was also found on the outside. The two firearms used in the murders was an AR-15 style rifle and a shotgun. And again, those have never been found. Uh, Alex's hands, his shirt and shorts, and the seatbelt buckle of his car also had a small number of gunshot residue particles on them. On his shoes, though, there was none found. So if you recall when we were talking about Paul's video inside the kennels that two people had said they were 100% sure that it was definitely Alex's voice that was in that video, one other person also said that he was 100% sure that the voice captured on the video um, was Alex, and that is his friend, Ronnie Crosby, who is a partner at the law firm and a friend of Alex for like 25 years. He testified that he rushed to Moselle as soon as he learned about the murders and stayed with Alec until about 3.30 in the morning. He said that during that night, he had multiple conversations with Alec about what he was doing that night and that Alec had personally told him that he never went down to the kennels that night. And, uh, you know, instead he gave him the same alibi story that he gave law enforcement, that he was napping in the home, woke up, drove to his parents' house to visit his mother. Mr. Crosby also testified that he learned that uh, Alec had been stealing millions of dollars from the law firm clients and that um, he probed into the missing payments was put on hold. I'm sorry, that the probe into the missing payments was put on hold because of the murder. So a lot of things kind of going into what this motive is and why he may have done what he did. Another way prosecutors were trying to find holes in the alibi was data taken from uh, Alex's car, and it offered a potential timeline for his movements on the night of the murders and suggests a whole bunch of uh, holes between that and obviously what his mother's caregiver said. FBI electronics engineer uh, Dwight Fox, so I can't even say his last name, so I'm not going to, uh, he testified that he extracted data from the onboard computer system of his 2021 Chevrolet Suburban, including call logs, contact lists, some location data, and the state of the vehicle in terms of when it was turned on, when it was in and out of park mode, and when the doors were opened, which is crazy that that's what we could do these days. So this basically gave the jurors an idea as to what um, Alex's movements were that night. It indicated that Alec did leave the family home and drove to visit his sixth mother around 9.06 p.m. and arrived at 9.22. However, it also indicates that he only stayed at his parents' house for 21 minutes and not the 30 to 40 minutes he told Ms. Smith to tell authorities, leaving again at 9.43 p.m. Records show him arriving at Moselle around 10 p.m. and he called 911 at 10.07 p.m. Uh, Alec's... Uh, previous or ex-friend, um, Mr. Wilson did testify a second time and he did uh, make mention that he had spoken to Murdaugh on the night of the murders and records did show that Alec did call Mr. Wilson at 9-11 on the night of the 7th of June and that uh, Mr. Wilson had asked Alec if he could call him back because he was busy and that Alec com seemed completely normal at the time. Uh, then call records showed that Mr. Wilson called him 
Alec back at 9.20 and Murdaugh said he was just getting to his mother's house. At 9.52 p.m., Murdaugh had sent him a text saying, call me if you're up. Mr. Wilson said he called him right away. The first time there was no answer, so he called a second time and Alec answered and they had a brief chat about Murdaugh's mother. Prosecutors say that Murdaugh killed his wife and son again around 8.50, so he, here he was an hour later acting completely normal. Prosecutors also interviewed the current housekeeper. Um, her name was Blanca Simpson. And she worked with, uh, as the family housekeeper for several years. And she had said that uh, Mr. Myrtle had asked her to come to Moselle on June 8th, 2021, hours after the murders, to make the house, quote unquote, the way Maggie liked it. She said when she went to the house, she noticed several unusual things, including pots being in the fridge instead of on the stove or sink. Maggie's pajamas and underwear were laying in a neat pile in the middle of the doorway of the laundry room. Um, just very unusual things. And uh, she said it just didn't look right to her because apparently Maggie didn't wear underwear with her pajamas and they appeared to be clean and not dirty. Um, in the shower room, she said she noticed a light puddle of water, a towel, and a pair of khaki pants. On the morning of June 7th, she told the court that she had seen Alec wearing a pair of khaki pants. She testified that she put the pants in the wash. Ms. Simpson also testified about the full outfit she saw Murdaugh wearing on the morning of the murders, khaki pants, seafoam polo shirt, a blue sports coat, and some house shoes. Um, as the person who cleaned all of the Murdaugh's clothing. Uh, she revealed that she never saw the seafoam colored shirt or the house shoes ever again after the day of the murders. Two months after the murders in August of 2021, she testified that Murdaugh had brought up what shirt he was wearing on the morning of the murders. The two of them were at one of the Murdaugh's properties and he told her, I need to talk to you, come and sit down. And she just had a really bad feeling and she was kind of nervous, and he mentioned that there's a video and said, you remember the Vinnie Vine shirt I was wearing that day? And Miss Simpson said she believed that he was trying to make sure she told law enforcement the same story about what he was wearing the day of the murders. I'm telling you, this, this whole family has been slick their whole lives getting out of trouble and stuff, so it doesn't surprise me that he was doing all this. Jurors uh, also heard about phone calls and text messages between Miss Simpson and Maggie, revealing that Alec had insisted both Maggie and Paul come to the property at Moselle on the day of the murders. Miss Simpson told the court that Maggie texts her saying, Alec wants me to come home. Maggie liked being at the family home uh, beach house in Edisto and had been preparing to host a big 4th of July gathering there, so she didn't really want to come home, but in a phone conversation, Maggie also mentioned that Alec wanted her to come to Moselle that day, and she seemed a bit disappointed about it. She sounded like she didn't want to come home. She was just upset about it. But Alec had also asked Paul to come, too, because he wanted his son to fix something on the property, according to Miss Simpson. Um, prior to the murder, Maggie had confided to Miss Simpson about concerns with the family's finances and the concerns that Murdaugh was not being truthful to, with her about the extent of their situation. Miss Simpson said that when she spoke about everything with Maggie, Maggie had broke down crying. She was concerned about the amount of money they were requesting on the lawsuit, which was $30 million. 
Um, she also mentioned that Maggie told her she felt like Alec wasn't being truthful. And under cross-examination, though, Ms. Simpson told the court that she got the impression that Alec adored his wife. But Ms. Simpson damningly became the fourth witness to identify Murdaugh's voice in the video with the dog kennels moments before the murders. So, you know, did he adore his wife or is he just an actor? So going into the actual murders, forensic pathologist Dr. Ellen Reimer testified to the extent of the injury suffered by both Maggie and Paul. Uh, she said that she performed the autopsies and revealed that Paul was likely standing with his face tilted toward the killer when he was shot. The first bullet to the chest likely left him standing, but the second bullet blew the side of his blew the inside of his head, leaving almost all of his brain matter detached from his body. Uh, Dr. Reimer said that the stippling that was found on Paul's chest wound indicating the shot was fired from within three feet, but not closer than six inches. There was no soot, which, that, which would indicate a closer shot. Maggie was also facing her killer when she was first shot, the expert said. She suffered a gunshot wound to her left breast, and the bullet traveled upward to the left side of her face. The second shot went through her kidney, which probably caused her to bend over while in that position. She was shot in the chest and the back of the head. Cameras in the courtroom were requested not to show the graphic autopsy pictures. But somehow I do believe that they were leaked after the case, which is just disgusting. Maggie's sister did testify on February 14th, and it was revealed that her brother-in-law, Alec, had made weird comments after the murders. She mentioned that one time, she, you know, he mentioned he didn't know anybody that, that would have did this, but definitely that the, the killer had planned the murders for a long time. He could just tell, I guess, by how everything was. Um, also mentioned that Alec was more eager to clear Paul's name of the boat crash than finding who murdered Maggie and Paul, which she thought was weird. Um, she also revealed that Maggie discovered that her sister and her husband had an affair. And in the absence of the jury, uh, Ms. Proctor claimed that although the affair had happened 15 years ago and they were able to work through it, it was still a sore point in the marriage and that Maggie had brought it up again around the time of the murders. Um, so the defense denied the affair and asked the judge to disregard the testimony and the judge agreed. So the jury did not hear that part. Another witness was the dog Derek, uh, caretaker, Dale Davis, who you know, usually cared for the dogs at the kennels. And he mentioned that the puddles of water were not where they should have been. And the hose had clearly been used and the dogs were all in the wrong kennels when the police arrived on scene. The prosecutor suggested that Murdoch cleaned up himself and the crime scene after the murders before building the alibi. Under cross-examination, Mr. Davis confirmed that the hose was already in a different position to where he had left it uh, on the cell phone video captured by Paul. He also recounted a time when Murdaugh couldn't bring himself to put a dog down. So I guess they were trying to just get sympathy. The prosecution then showed uh, video footage of a police interview with Alec Murdaugh on August 11th, 2021. In the interview, which had never been seen before, SLED Special Agent David Owen confronted Murdaugh about the inconsistencies with his alibi. Uh, from his interview two months 
um, two months before. Among the inconsistencies were how long Murdoch spent at his mother's home that night, whether or not he went to the dog kennels, the different clothes he was wearing, the timeline of when he was at his uh, law firm, and the reason why Maggie had gone to the family estate that day. Alec denied that it was his voice on the, uh, Paul's cell phone, even though multiple witnesses had said it is. Um, in the police interview, it also showed that Murdaugh claimed he had spent 45 minutes to an hour at his sick mother's house that night, which obviously had been proven wrong. Uh, Alec also claimed that he wasn't expecting his wife home, but that uh, she was there because she was worried about him. But obviously, again, we had learned that that's not the truth, that Miss Simpson had testified that Maggie had said that Alec wanted her and Paul to come to the house that night. So it was several inconsistencies within a matter of time. The footage also showed that Alec didn't have any surprise when he was told for the very first time that most likely his wife and son had been murdered by the family's own guns. Near the end of the police interview, the agent was seen telling Murdoch that he has a few more questions. And then the bombshell moment, the officer asked Murdoch for the first time if he had killed his wife and son. He legit just asked, like, did you kill Maggie? And Alec replied, no, I did not kill my wife. And then uh, the off agent asked if he knows who did, and he said, no, I don't know who did. Then uh, realized that that's when Alec pretty much realized that he was the prime suspect. And he legit just asked, like, am I a suspect in this case? Upon cross-examination, uh, the defense pretty much wanted to know why at that point Alec was the prime suspect. And they mentioned that, you know, at the at, around that time, Alec was spending about $50,000 a week on drugs and that, you know, Mr. Smith, who was Alex's alleged drug dealer, distant cousin, former law firm client, um, you know, co-conspirator in the botched hitman plot, owed money to a local gang or whatever and you know wanted to know why the members of this gang were never treated as suspects and why their dna wasn't tested and why no evidence was taken you know from the crime scene to see if it was because you know they did it um but he but the agent testified that by august 2021 murdoch was the one and only suspect in the killings as a result of the cross-examination, um, which hurt the defense, it actually led the judge to reverse a ruling and it allowed the jurors to hear the testimony about the hitman plot and potentially actually hearing from Mr. Smith, who was known as Cousin Eddie. And they kind of really went into that whole thing, which we already talked about. Then a crime scene expert came in and talked about how um, and again, this is very graphic, so I apologize, but, you know, really walking the jurors through the victim's final moments and including the gunshots that they suffered and where the gunman stood while firing each shot. And basically it was revealed that the killer ambushed Paul in the feeding room of the dog kennel and left him with no time to defend himself. The first shot, which struck Paul in the chest and arm was not fatal. But then, and he remained standing for several moments and then moved slowly towards the door of the feeding room, towards 
the killer. As he reached the door frame, he was shot a second time in the shoulder and brain and fell forward, landing outside the feeding room. After killing Paul, the gunman left the feeding room area and approached Maggie outside. In her final moments, she faced her killer and backed away, knocking into the family's ATV before being gunned down by the killer. She was struck twice before falling to her knees, at which point the killer shot her twice in the head. Again, jurors were shown photos and uh, also photos of a tire impression on the back of Maggie's calf, which the expert said was from the tire of the ATV under the hangar next to where Maggie's body was found. So going back to the car data, um, it actually placed Alec Murdoch at the spot where his wife's phone was later found dumped uh, before he quickly sped away from the scene. General Motors had contacted law enforcement to hand over a trove of data from the 2021 Chevy Suburban, including never-before-seen speed and GPS data, days after an agent testified about the data in the car. So, you know, GM stepped up. It shows that uh, Mr. Murdaugh left the family home in his 2021 Chevy Suburban at 9.07 p.m. on the night of June 7th, just minutes after he allegedly killed Maggie and Paul. A minute later, while driving down the road at the speed of 42 miles per hour, his car passed the very spot along the road where Maggie's cell phone was recovered from the shrubbery the next day. After passing that spot, his car then picked up speed, reaching 52 miles per hour just one minute later at 9.09 p.m. and continuing to go down, go at a high speed all the way to his mother's house. Another big crack in Murdaugh's alibi was that data revealed that less than 20 seconds passed between the moment Alex's car arrived at the dog kennel and the start of his 911 call when, where he claimed to have found Maggie and Paul's body. During the 911 call and in interviews, Mur- Murdaugh gave Um, In the aftermath of the murders, he claimed that he had touched both the bodies and checked for signs of life before calling 911. Uh, He also claimed that he moved Paul and his cell phone popped out of his pocket and he picked it up and put it back down on his son. The data showed that Murdoch's car arrived at the dog dog kennels at uh, 10.05 and 57 seconds that night and that he made the call at 10.06 and 14 seconds just 17 seconds after his car pulled into the kennel. So unless he's Superman and could run that quickly, I I don't see how that is remotely possible. Another thing that they're putting toward motive is that apparently Paul and Maggie found bags of pills a month before the murders and that Maggie was supposedly searching uh, the internet to try and find out what each pill was um, on June 3rd. Four days before the murders, he sent, uh, Alec had sent a voicemail to a bank CEO asking him for money. And he said that he needed to extend his farm credit line another $600,000 and mentioned that his dad will sign also if needed and asked how much turnaround it would take. So he was, he was looking for some major, major moolah. Taking the stand on his father's defense, which I mentioned before, is Buster, who is the oldest son. He mentioned that his father had been completely destroyed and heartbroken after the murders. And actually, his testimony is like the first time he's ever spoken out publicly about the murders. 
And he recounted the moment he learned about uh, the deaths. He said that Alec had called him that night and asked him if he was sitting down. He said that he sounded odd and told him that his mother and brother were shot. And he immediately headed to uh, his home and found his father just completely heartbroken and barely able to speak. Defense also brought in an expert witness, uh, who, a forensic engineer, Mike Sutton, who basically said that the shooter was 5'2", so there was no way that uh, Alec could have done it because he is 6'4". And then I think the, the real turning point of the case happened on February 23rd, which is when Alec Murdoch himself took the stand in his own murder trial and had actually confessed that he lied about his alibi on the night of the murders. At the start of his testimony, he right away admitted to lying about not going to the dog kennels because obviously he was caught. So what else was he going to do? And he immediately blamed his opioid addiction for giving him paranoid thinking and his distrust in SLED, which together led him to lie to law enforcement agents, family members and friends on multiple occasions for 20 months. He said on the stand that on June 7th, he wasn't thinking clearly. He doesn't think he was capable of reason. He lied about being down there, and he was very sorry that he did. And then he made mention that the actually the judge uh, kind of threw it back in his face at the end. Uh, Oh, what a tangle web we weave. Once I told a lie and I told my family I had to keep lying. And that was the first time that Alec had confessed publicly or to law enforcement that he had lied. And the confession came after jurors had seen Paul's cell phone video, which placed him at the scene. So he literally didn't really even have a choice. While confessing to lying, he continued to insist his innocence on the murders. I did not shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. He spoke fondly of his wife and son, who he repeatedly referred to as Pawpaw as he faced jurors head on and broke down in tears on multiple occasions. Uh, He dismissed the significant key parts of the prosecution's case, such as his change in clothing and his alleged attempts to get a story straight with his mother's uh, carrier and his housekeeper. He also confessed to stealing money from his law firm and to orchestrating a bizarre botched hitman plot, but continued to deny killing his wife and son. He blamed his alleged financial crimes on a 20-year opioid addiction, which he said he spent years battling. He claimed he developed his addiction after injuring his knee in college, and his addiction just escalated after that. In a move to undermine the prosecution's theory of motive, he insisted that he was not concerned that his financial crimes were on the brink of exposure on the day of the murders. His law firm was asking questions about missing payments, with his CFO confronting him about the $792,000 on the day of the murders, and a hearing in the 2019 fatal boat crash lawsuit was scheduled for later that week. So he said he wasn't concerned, yet all of this was about to come up. He also uh, tried to get tried to dismiss the significance of the voicemail message he sent to the bank CEO four days before the murders, and he suggested that the deaths of Maggie and Paul could not have benefited him financially. He insisted that there was $7 million in equity in the Moselle home and that the home was fully in Maggie's name. The entire Moselle property was 100% in Maggie's name. So 
her death actually made it more difficult to access his finances, which I don't know if that's true, actually. Anyway, uh, in terms of the botched hitman plot, he told the court that he believed it would be better for him to just be dead. I want to know why, Alec. Why was it just better for you to be dead? Is it because of the financial issues? Um, or is it because you killed your wife and son and, you know, whatever. But during a really intense cross-examination about his family's prominence um, in, the, in, the, in the low country, uh, he snapped and he uh, he confronted the prosecutor who reeled off a list of real people who had suffered extensive injuries and losses and then were swindled by Murdoch. Um, he was also told that in one case, Alec had stole $6 million from Hakeem Pickney, a man who became a quadriplegic after a car crash. So literally the prosecution just like made him seem worse and worse and worse. It got very heated um, as Mr. Waters delved into the financial crimes of Alec Murdoch, repeatedly returning to what the prosecutor said was a rehearsed line. Um, He continued to spar with prosecution over the prominence of the Murdoch family in Hampton County. And with Murdoch admitting that people likely saw him as a successful lawyer and that he and his family were prominent in the local legal circles, which we all knew that, which is why they were able to do whatever they could without getting in trouble. He also admitted that he may have used his solicitor's badge to curry favor with law enforcement in the past, including the night of the boat crash. The court was shown a surveillance image of Murdoch at the hospital while the other teenagers were taken. He was wearing a solicitor's badge hanging out of his pocket in the image. He denied telling the survivors not to cooperate with law enforcement and said he wasn't sure why he had his badge on him, but he may have done so to get a warmer response from the police. So he's denying that he tried to coerce these kids into lying to to save Paul, but... The jury also learned how he uh, fit blue police lights in his vehicle, even though he was never a member of law enforcement. On February 24th, the continued cross-examination, Murdoch claimed he can't remember the last conversation he ever had with his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul, just minutes before they were gunned down uh, at the family's estate. He was confronted by Mr. Waters about his new story where he admits to being at the kennels with his wife and son. When he asked what he did at the kennels, all Mr. Murdoch said was he was talking to Mags, yet he was unable to recall what the conversation was. Under further prompting from the prosecutor, Murdoch said that Maggie was very concerned about Paul, and so he believes that they may have spoken about that. He also said he believes he spoke to Paul, but was not sure what that was about either. So, how convenient. Uh, Cross-examination was really, 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 like, intense and, and just, like, back and forth, but um, Mr. Waters confronted Mr. Murdoch on his new story about being at the dog kennels, which came after 20 months of lying to officials, friends, and family. Prosecutor pointed out that this confession only came after jurors saw Paul's cell phone video, which placed him at the scene of the murders with his wife and son at 8.44 p.m., and after multiple witnesses had identified his voice in the footage. Murdoch denied uh, that he was making up the story and instead sought to blame the prosecution for his lies, rumbling on 
until his trial testimony, claiming that he tried to tell the truth, but that the state would not speak to him. Uh, in a really big, like dramatic moment, laced with a lot of objections from the defense, Mr. Waters pointed out that Murdoch's own attorneys were not apparently aware of his change in story either. Jurors heard how at the time of, I'm sorry, at the time when Murdoch claimed he wanted to come clean, his attorneys did a national TV interview in November of last year, repeating his own lies about his alibi. In another moment, uh, Murdoch insisted that there was no one else in the vicinity of the kennels when he was there, or the family's dogs would have reacted. Pressed about the specific time he left, Murdoch estimated that he likely left around 8.47 p.m. With the drive back up to the house in the golf cart taking a couple of minutes, Mr. Walters pointed out that he would have gotten there around 8.49 p.m. Data indicates that Maggie and Paul last used their cell phones at 8.49 p.m. and were shot dead around 8.50. Alec testified that he didn't hear any gunshots after arriving back at the house. He was grilled about the cell phone data, which did not record any steps between 8.09 and 9.02. He, uh, Alec claimed that he must have left his phone at the house while at the kennels, though he claims that he, uh, he might have been back around 12 minutes by that point. And, uh, in the four minutes between 9.02 and 9.06, Murdoch's cell phone then recorded 283 steps, a movement that Alec struggled to explain other than that he was getting ready to go to his mother's house. I know this is a really long episode, so I'm getting there. <laughs> um, Alec was continually grilled about discrepancies around when he allegedly touched the bloody bodies of his wife and son. During direct questioning, Alec again claimed that he touched both victims, but appeared to change his timing uh, than what he said with the 911 dispatcher. Mr. Waters confronted him about this, saying that he had repeatedly told law enforcement that he had touched both Maggie and Paul prior to the 911 call. And he said, I know I checked them, but I don't think I checked them before calling 911. However, in the 911 call, Murdoch did say that he already touched them, but is unclear if this was earlier in the call or prior to the call being placed or whatever. Mr. Waters suggested that this was just another attempt for Murdoch to amend his story to try and fit into the evidence already stacked against him. Uh, the data from the SUV ha also previously revealed that less than 20 seconds passed between his car arriving at the scene and him placing the 911 call. So again, no way that he could have touched the bodies within that 20 seconds. Uh, Murdaugh also claimed that he still believes his wife and son were murdered by an unknown assailant because of the boat uh, crash in 2019. Um, he said that the social media response was really vile after everything and that things were said about what they want to do to Paw Paw and they were just very over the top, but they never took anything too seriously. He said, uh, I believe then and I believe today that the wrong person saw and read that because I can tell you for a fact that the person or people who did this, who did what I saw on June 7th, they hated Paul Murdaugh and they had anger in their heart. And then he broke down in tears again. So the prosecutor scoffed at that theory, saying that, it, you know, the chances of it being a random vigilante. And, uh, you know, once again, defense tried to bring up that it might have been because the shooter was most likely 5'2", based on their expert witness. Uh, but 
prosecutors did point out there was no evidence to support the accused, uh, the, the defense's theory. So uh, after long cross-examination, another bombshell moment unfolded when Murdaugh was accused of lying on the stand about why he had lied over his alibi on the night of the murders. Murdaugh had testified that he had lied for the past 20 months because he was paranoid over his suspicions of SLED warnings from his law firm partners about always have a lawyer present when speaking to the police and investigators having swapped his hands for gunshot residue. But in a dramatic moment, Mr. Waters poured cold water on his testimony as he played a clip from body cam footage from the first officer to respond to the scene. In the video, Daniel Green asked Murdaugh when he last saw Maggie and Paul, and he said, earlier tonight, I don't know the exact time. I was probably gone about an hour and a half to my mom's, and I saw them about 45 minutes before that. Mr. Waters pointed out that none of those factors Murdaugh claimed prompted his paranoid-fueled lies at the time. So he basically said that he's lying on the stand, too, and Murdaugh disagreed. Defense also had two expert witnesses uh, come up and say that Paul was most likely shot in the back of the head. Um based on, I guess, how everything was, but that, again, goes against what uh, was said on the other side, where they said that Paul was facing his killer. So there is two different points of view. You know, expert witnesses say back, expert witnesses on the other side say he was facing him. So, you know, again, what do normal people know? You, you, you know, believe experts, but when you have two, three different experts saying different things, it, it is hard to to know that. Alex's younger brother, um, John uh, Marvin Murdaugh, was called up to the stand. He mentioned that he had a really special relationship with his, ne- with his nephew who was killed and that he had gone down to the dog kennels on June 8th and could see Paul's blood and brain matter and pieces of the skull left over, uh, all, left all over the feed room. So he actually was uh, cleaning up what he said was what was left of Paul and it was just extremely hard. And he promised Paul at that time that he would find out who did this to him. And it's something he hasn't done yet because he doesn't think his brother did it. And also mentioned that his brother had a great relationship with his wife and son. Also going back into the lack of cleanup and just how badly sled handled the crime scene. John Marvin gave other testimony um, being very critical of the investigation and included what he described as a baffling statement released by law enforcement and apparent lack of urgency to locate Maggie's cell phone and evidence law enforcement shared with him that turned out to be inaccurate. He testified that he met with investigators a lot over the course of the investigation and had been shown evidence that officials had connecting his brother to the murders. He told the court how he later learned that some of the evidence was not accurate. He recalled one day where he was asked about the blue raincoat, which had been found during the search of the upstairs bedroom at their parents' home. Uh, He said his brother and sister were later shown the coat, and he said that he had never seen it before. However, he said he learned that it had been found in a closet in his parents' home that was typically used to store junk. A sled agent also told him that they knew his brother was responsible for the murders because of blood splatter. Uh, blood spatter evidence found on the white t-shirt he was wearing the night of the murders. However, as we know, 
there was no white spat uh there was no blood spatter on that white t-shirt so uh but prosecutors allege that Murdaugh actually changed his clothing during the murder so again it, it is false regardless uh, during rebuttal, basically, prosecution had Dr. Reimer come back in and basically say how the two forensic uh, experts on the defense side were wrong. And then uh, there was a bunch of other rebuttal witnesses that kind of contradict uh, Alex's testimony himself. So um, also a crime scene expert basically throws the 5-2 shooter out the window um, and again, talked about Paul's injuries and that was pretty much it. And then obviously there was closing statements and then the jury deliberated. Now, what's interesting about this whole case in terms of the jury is the jury was not allowed to have any notebooks or anything to write down when, but everything was in the jury room. So when hearing, uh, talks from some of the jury members who did go on the news after, everything went down they did say that you know a lot of jury members would go into the jury room during breaks or at the end of the day and just write down certain things so that they can or certain questions so that they can all talk about it when they came back so uh jury deliberations started and in less than three hours later they returned back with a guilty verdict um Outside the courtroom, prosecutors were greeted to cheering crowds over the the verdict response. Um, and then the next day, he was uh, sentenced to two life cons- consecutive uh, life sentences. And then he still kind of has to deal with all of the financial stuff. So, I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, there was a point in the trial where the jury was brought to the the estate to kind of see things and I know some of the jurors that again talked to to the news after the trial said that that actually helped them a lot because you know Alec Murdaugh made mention that he had left and gone back to the house he didn't hear gunshots or anything and the one juror said that she saw how close the house was to the kennels like there's no way with the amount of shots especially gunshot the you know, shotgun shots and stuff like that, that he would not have heard the murders happening. So uh, they also made mention that they thought Alec getting up on the stand was probably the worst thing for him to do because it actually hurt him more than help him. Um, So they, they thought that was a big mistake. I'm sure Alec Murdaugh is going to appeal and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But as of right now, he is a convicted murderer and is sentenced to two consecutive life sentences for the murder of his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. So there you go. That That's it. You know, that that's all there is. Again, I am so sorry for how long this episode is, but it was a lot of information. The, the whole trial lasted about six weeks or so. And um, it was just crazy. March 2nd was when the the verdict came out. And again, less than three hours. And I just remember I was nervous because it was either going to be a hung jury or he was going to be guilty. I really didn't think he was ever going to be innocent necessarily. But, you know, it, it worked out and there is some justice for for Paul and Maggie. I know 
Mallory Beach's family is still going ahead to go after the Murdoch family. So we'll see kind of what happens with that. If I learn more as things get going, of course, I'll, I'll try and come back with that information. But for, for now, that's it for the Murdoch murder trial. So thank you so much for listening, guys. And uh, we'll talk soon.